Hi listeners, I'm sad to report that today's episode will be the final one of season three. Jackie and I are vaccinated and we're ready to go enjoy some time off, but we plan to kick things back up in the fall and there might be a few surprises between now and then, so don't forget about us, please. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast and of course, thank you to all of the incredibly smart guests we had on the show this season. Now, to end things on an incredibly high note, today our guest is Rachel Moss. Rachel Moss is a reporter at Huffington Post UK. She heads up Women's Health, covering topics such as the NHS IVF postcode lottery, the provision of abortion care, and the impact of COVID-19 on maternity and postnatal services. She runs HuffPost's COVID-Free Zone, a news section offering respite during the pandemic, and is also the co-host of Am I Making You Uncomfortable? a weekly podcast on women's health, body, and private lives. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. So the story we're focusing on today is one titled, I tried an at-home fertility test, here's how it went. Can you give us a brief summary of what that's all about? Yeah, sure. So I really enjoyed working on the story, actually. It was uh, around the launch of a new fertility test available in the UK called GRIP. And this test is essentially an at-home MOT fertility test. So if you've never heard of those before, you do a blood test and you send that off to a lab and technicians look at it. And then the company claims that the test allows you to rule out the four main causes of infertility. So this test can't tell you if you'll definitely conceive in the future or how quickly you might conceive, but it does rule out the four main causes of infertility, one of which being low ovarian reserve or low egg count. So super, it's a super interesting um, new piece of kit, really. And previously, these sort of tests, you know, you'd go to a clinic and you'd spend a lot of money. But now you can get them in the UK and do them at home for a far lower cost. So you cover fertility often and um, the people who sent you the pitch and wanted to tell you more about GRIP, I'm assuming saw this in your feed and they accurately, you know, decided who to pitch the story to. Um, But is there anything else that stood out to you besides relevance? Um, yeah, as you say, they had done their research, which is always super helpful. Um, they mentioned when they emailed me that they'd seen a specific story on a similar topic that had run a few weeks before. Um, so that's always good to know that they've they've done that first. Um, but yeah, it stood out. One of the reasons was just because of the lead time on it. So um, it was actually the co-founder of Grip that emailed me. Um, they're quite a small startup at the moment, so I don't think they've got a big PR budget. So she emailed me to tell me about it. And it was about three, three and a half weeks before the the kit launched in the UK. That sort of time just makes a huge difference for a journalist like me working on a relatively small team, because it means I've got time to plan and think about whether I've even got the scope to pick up a story on the product or not. So the time meant that, you know, I could try the test for myself, which brought loads of colour to the story, I think. But also um, a real big factor was that I had enough time to speak to an independent fertility expert. And that is one of the things that we're really, really keen on for health stories. You know, I don't just want to be repeating 
uh, words out of the horse's mouth from a brand. I always want to go to someone independent where we can. So we make sure we're doing a piece that isn't just free advertising. It's, you know, a piece that readers can really trust and really learn something from. And in this particular case, I interviewed a fertility doctor from the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. And she had a lot to say about the product, actually. She raised some really key ethical concerns and also some concerns about the reliability. So that was um, really important for me. You know, as soon as I saw that pitch, I thought, okay, I've, I've got time to really investigate it properly and not just regurgitate a press release. And when it's a story like a fertility test that could really impact women's lives in a very real way, you know, you want to make sure you get it right. Yeah, I jotted that down because I thought that was very smart. And as I was reading it myself, I was like, wow, this at-home fertility test seems like something I should do. And then it was so helpful just to learn about why it's, you know, I think you said it at the end, why no test can tell you when to have a baby and why it's so important to talk to a medical professional and everybody's unique. Like you're, you have your own unique situation yeah. to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think some women would find that test really helpful and that's great. Other women would find that test quite terrifying and, um, you know, it might not be the best thing for mental health long term. So having the opportunity to reflect all sides of that in a story is always super, super important to me. Mm-hmm. I did too notice uh, just more about the pitch and um, how you collaborated with I'm assuming Anne-Marie Dros directly or? Yeah, so um, so I chatted to Anne-Marie. Initially, we had a quick conversation just to find out more of what the test even was um, because, yeah, I I wanted more details before I potentially signed myself up to trying it. Um, And then she talked me through the process of uh, getting a kit sent out to my home address because they hadn't launched in the UK yet, so I was getting a, a preview prototype. Um, so I talked to her, but also to the um, to the lab directly because I had to send all my information there, and they weren't completely up and running yet. Um, so yeah, so that worked that way. But then for the other side of things, so for my independent expert, um, BPAS, so the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, um, they are a resource I go to a lot. Um, they have loads of experts who, you know, fertility doctors, gynecologists, IVF doctors, who you can call up and and speak to about these kind of things. And um, the PR there put me in touch with the particular person that I interviewed for the feature. Um, Yeah, so it was really helpful. Um, I have a question regarding timeline. So I understand that this pitch was sent out pre-product launch, but it also sounds like it probably took a while to conduct the reporting so I was wondering about timeline how far in advance did some did this person pitch you um how long did the reporting more or less take and then do you know when the product officially launched yeah so um so I think I believe Anne-Marie sent me the email about three weeks or three and a half weeks before the launch which for us is quite helpful because you know we're not a quarterly print publication that runs really far in advance but a little bit yeah. notice is, is always helpful and then I they got the test to me very quickly um and that the, your results take I think five days to come through so I was kind of waiting for all of all of the practical side before I could start writing um and then 
Yeah, so I guess the whole thing altogether was bits and pieces over the course of the three weeks before it launched. And then we launched the article on the day that the kit launched, which I think was the 1st of March. That is awesome. Oh, okay, wow. Cool. Yeah. I would have to check yeah. that. <laughs> they must have been thrilled to have it published the day of the launch, um, if it did. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, it, yeah, it publishes the day of the launch. And I think um, that's always something that we like to do as well, because hopefully it means that people haven't really read it elsewhere yet. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, as I said, because HuffPost is a smaller, snappier publication. Um, you want to make sure you get in there early, because as soon as it's on some of the bigger giants, sometimes, sadly, they're not going to read it on us. So if we can get in there early, it's, it's always a plus. That's good to know. I like that. And it's really good to know. I wanted to also ask about, I noticed there's pictures of the founders in the article. Of course, you included your own photos of you trying the product at home, which I thought was really like a really nice personal touch. Um, It sounds like then to me, like just from my own reviewing the article and seeing what you've used and what, you know, what you found helpful, it sounds like photos from the you know, the startup or the product itself are useful? Um, Yeah, definitely. If there's a product, always having photos of it is great. And I think if you happen to have a mixture of the, you know, traditional more product shots and and lifestyle shots, that's helpful so that we've got a choice. Um, For this particular story, obviously, I tried it myself. So some of the pictures came from me, but quite often we try to include case studies Uh, in stories perhaps not for a product story like this but say you've got a a campaign um, about I don't know a health condition or or something you want to raise awareness of if if you've got case studies of people who've got personal experience they can share of that that's super helpful and then having pictures of those case studies is another massive tick and can be you know the difference between us picking up a story and not picking up a story if we've got to make a tough choice that day cool and then not to jump around too much, but <laughs> um, your interview with doc- Dr. Perez and um, who represented the BPAS, British Pregnancy Advisory Service, it sounded like you had a previous relationship with, you know, representatives of that organization. But mm-hmm. hypothetically speaking, how would you go about qualifying whether or not you would interview that person? I think one of the key things is that they're a um, recognized organization in the UK who are like, they're the people to go to about pregnancy stuff, right? They're like the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. So if you want an expert in anything to do with that, um, they're the people to go to and you can kind of trust that they've been vetted by the charity. Actually, be passive if some of your um, international listeners aren't aware. They do loads on abortion care in the UK too. Um, so I've spoken to a lot of people there about abortions as well so they're really great and yeah you don't really need to do too much delving um, when you go to someone like that but I would say with experts in general I always ask exactly what they're an expert in Um, so for example when COVID started happening we would get a lot of people calling themselves scientists as quite a broad Mm term I mean I remember one time I had a pitch and there were quotes from a vet on how to stay safe during the pandemic and he didn't mean pet safety like he meant human safety um so you know you have to say you're a scientist of what um I think and 
And one of the things I get as well is women's health experts. I kind of use expert in quote marks there because it's a bit of a dodgy term. You know, are you a doctor? Are you a gynecologist? Are you a GP? Or are you an influencer who just happens to be interested in women's health? If you're the latter, you know, you, you might be great at raising awareness of things, but you shouldn't be giving medical advice to my readers. So mm-hmm. it's it's asking those kind of questions. Um, and if if the person hasn't come from a big organization like BPAS, you know, drilling down into exactly where they've come from and yeah, and what their qualifications are like and where their knowledge has come from. So if somebody is from a startup that is related to fertility and they don't necessarily have like somebody with credentialing behind their name, is it safe to say that maybe there would be a better way to work with you, not necessarily being like an industry expert, right? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. So if they're like a fertility startup or a startup working in the women's health sphere more broadly, I think it's always really useful when they've got an in-house expert who has obvious credentials. So um, for example, Bodyform, who are a tampon company in the UK, I don't know if they're also in the US, but they recently had an online press conference and they had a doctor who was a qualified women's health doctor and specialized in gynecology. And she was on the call to kind of back up what they were talking about and um, say some supportive things about their campaign. So I think if brands, whether you know they're a small brand or or they're a bigger one, if they can, if they haven't got the qualifications themselves as the founders, if they get someone else on board who can provide supporting quotes that's helpful and it probably puts my mind at ease a little bit um but yeah if I'm ever unsure I'll always just go to an independent person anyway that's great really good to hear (laughs) because we often have to explain that to our clients and you just put it in such a succinct easy to understand straightforward way so thank you oh I'm pleased (laughs) (laughs) um Let's see, Jackie, did you have any other questions about working with experts or qualifying experts? Mm, I think it's pretty straightforward from what you've said. Um, It kind of reminds me, Britt, of um, a couple episodes ago with L'Oreal because we kind of asked a similar question around if a company provided a third party expert um, for a story, if that would be helpful for her. And she kind of gave a similar answer, but hers is slightly different in that while she appreciates it, she would likely just find her own independent source anyway, just in Mm -hmm. case there's any sort of bias with the company that presents that expert. Like if they had maybe talking points or like you know some some sort of bias you know what I mean for sure actually it might be worth mentioning that um grip who do that fertility test they do have an in-house fertility doctor um but because they're a new company and I you know didn't have previous knowledge of them I also was aware of that potential bias because of that I did go to someone independent so it kind of depends on the implications I think and and also I hate to say this but time is sometimes a factor it never it never takes over like the quality or the integrity of your journalism I like to think but if it's a story that doesn't require a third party um and they happen to have somebody working with them then that's helpful um yeah yeah, it just saves us the time (laughs) that makes a lot of sense it probably yeah it depends on the story yeah 
Um, in terms of other questions, I feel like I had one more. Actually, yeah. So this also reminds, I guess we're just going to keep plugging episode names. <laughs> uh, but it reminds me of the Casey Bond episode. Actually, Casey worked for HuffPost in the U.S. Um, but she talked about when the initial pitch goes out and she needs the expert bio, for instance, she would prefer to have all the information about who this person is in the initial pitch. And it doesn't have to be in the body, but even at the bottom, that way she can quickly qualify them without having to do her own research of who this person is. So she suggested like a LinkedIn bio, a bio to like a website, um, listing the qualifications and then having a succinct one paragraph biography that demonstrates their expertise. I assume that's probably something you would find helpful as well, considering time is a factor. Yeah, absolutely. I think quite a common thing is people linking out to university pages um, when they've got the academics listed. Um, We do a lot of pieces that are kind of uh, in the psychology realm as well and looking at well-being and mental health and that side of women's health. Um, So if you've got, you know, various professors researching various elements of psychology or sociology that is a super quick way of me just checking okay they've done research for Cambridge University so I'm gonna guess they know the stuff you know um anything like that is yeah it saves time super easy it's you know super transparent as well I feel like it would be really cool to do publicity for like a college where you have experts that you represent because we had another episode I'm just going to keep plugging them. The space episode. Where, mm-hmm. um, remember, he said like, oh, yeah, I work mm-hmm. with universities all the time because they're always putting out good research that I can use. And I'm like, oh, man, as a publicist, that's like a gold mine because there's no there's no pleading about your expertise. It's all right there. You know, you got mm-hmm. that nice EDU behind your name and the yeah. you know, high quality yes. research. Exactly. Especially in the last year, like. There is a couple, there are a couple of professors who work in epidemiology who I'm now on like first name terms with because I've spoken to them so many times about (laughs) COVID. Um, So yeah, they have had a lot of publicity this year and I don't think anyone's had to work particularly hard at getting them the slots. Um, Obviously, they've worked very hard on the research, but yeah, from there on out, I think it's been quite a nice job. Oh, man, I bet it's like the Wild West with that kind of stuff. Like, do you have you received pitches with that kind of have suspicious information of people touting to know stuff about COVID that is almost like on the fringe of uh, like not scientific? Yeah. There, yeah, there were there were a lot of pitches early doors that were about um, immunity and um, boosting your immune system. And I actually did an article way back last spring about, you know, having a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet and so on. You, Although you're giving your body your best chance, you're not going to stop yourself from getting COVID, you know. And, and there's, there's a line uh, there which some brands were definitely crossing, you know, take this smoothie and you'll be protected from this thing that's absolutely, you know, going through the world when actually sadly if it was as easy as taking a smoothie we'd have all been doing that all along right um yeah yeah, so there were definitely some health claims that were a little yeah they were they were too close to to being um what's the word I mean there were two there were definitely some health claims that were too close just to being completely fake um Mm -hmm. and 
you know, there are other things as well that we get quite a lot that might be a placebo effect or if it if something says this is guaranteed to improve sleep or boost well-being well perhaps sometimes it some people have said that it helps them um i'm thinking of cbd being one of them which in the uk we definitely do not have that market regulated enough there's not been enough research about it here it's still quite a controversial ingredient here but a lot of press releases will claim that it can cure everything from you know anxiety to eczema and you really just need to be careful on the language there of of what you're actually saying and and to me if I get a release that claims something is an absolute cure for anything I would I would never touch it that's that's an instant red light those are all really important and I'm so glad this came up I wasn't I wasn't expecting to talk a lot about covid and and that side of things but i'm this is so we haven't done that yet we have yeah this is a good yeah um i'm curious to know how do you source your story art like your story ideas and what you decide to write about oh um there are so many ways um so many ways part one of the big ones is pr pitches um so i get a lot of emails every day about 800 a day, which is a lot to sort through. Um, so I really do feel the pain of PRs trying to get an email noticed. Um, but some of them will come from that. And then we often expand those. So it will be quite rare for us just to churn out a press release because we do have quite a focus on original journalism. So it will be looking at that release and going, okay, what other questions can we ask or who else can we interview and how can we expand it while also honoring the hard work that's been put into the pitch in the first place and giving credit where credit's due so that's one source um another is twitter um i was a bit allergic to twitter to be honest when i became a journalist like eight or so years ago I didn't used to use it that much but I have really found that finally giving in over the last couple of years and engaging with people has been super useful for finding stories it can be everything from seeing a tweet that sparks an idea to people dming me Um, I often find that just regular people regular case studies are more inclined to send a quick dm on social media than a formal email I think maybe it feels a bit more approachable a bit less a bit less formal so found loads of stories that way um there's there's a couple of facebook groups that are super useful that i use a lot um so i'm running a section of HuffPost called covid free zone at the moment um which is all about fun articles that provide respite during the pandemic and there's a couple of closed facebook groups i'm part of that have entrepreneurs and business owners and this week i was short on content and i just said guys this is the section this is what i've commissioned so far has anyone got anything that would be remotely suitable and i've got like five new stories um straight away that have come through i'm so grateful for that so yeah being proactive and sometimes asking people do you have anything if you do please send it my way or what should i be writing about more And then the last thing is just speaking to friends. I don't think that can ever be um, really underestimated. You know, whatever your mates are talking about is probably the things that a lot of other people's mates are talking about. And so it's worth writing, particularly if you work in lifestyle journalism. It's all about people's lives, right? So 
yeah, I always kind of have my journalist hat on, uh, although I try not to completely rip off my friends' personal lives too much in stories. Um, sometimes it does, you know, provide a source. Yeah, I'm curious about the Facebook group. So what's the group all about? So there's one that's particularly good um, called Lightbulb. I say that because I'm like, oh, should I give all the other journalists my uh, my hacks? But no, I will. I'll give this one away. So there's one, there's one group called <laughs> there's one group called Lightbulb, um, which you can ask to join, and it is full of entrepreneurs and small business owners and journalists, and you can post in there all sorts of requests. For example, um, hair salons have just reopened in England this week. Someone posted in there saying, hi, I'm looking for any salon owners who can send me before and after pictures of their clients. And then immediately you've got access to salon owners because there's a bunch of people like that in there. And and um, yeah, so it's just a, a really, really lively group. It, there's really high engagement in there. Um, it was founded, actually, I should give a shout out to the wonderful woman who founded it called Charlotte Crisp. Um and yeah, so there's there's a couple of different groups like that um, that I am part of that periodically will post in and it can be really helpful. And I quite like the fact that they're closed groups as well, because I don't always want to put all of my stories out publicly before I've even written them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, writing on my own Twitter, oh, has anyone got experience of X, Y, Z? You know, I do that sometimes, but sometimes you think, oh, I've just given my story away to the world. You know, it's yeah. It's, it's nice to work on it in private, see if it's got wings um, before you kind of show it off to everybody. Yeah, that's what I think about. Help a reporter out sometimes. Um, I see like a lot of you know people submit their store, who they're looking for, what mm-hmm. kind of sources they're looking for, and the publication they're at, and it's like, oh, okay, so I know what they're going to be writing about. And then I think someone, I might be making this up, but I'm pretty sure somebody on the podcast has told us once that. They don't like to use help a reporter out because they've seen instances in which competing publications have just stolen the idea. That is so So sneaky. I understand that. But also, (laughs) yeah, I'm allergic to Facebook, but now you've convinced me to – Try to look oh. to try to find some groups. Honestly, I don't use it for personal use ever, ever anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all people that I haven't spoken to for at least a decade. They're my only Facebook friends, people who I went to school with. But um, <laughs> the private groups are very useful for work purposes, for sure. And mm. would you say um, would you say it's like more UK based? businesses or is it global that, that particular one um is uk based actually i think the couple that i'm part of are both uk based but i would say that if you're somewhere else internationally just have a google see what you can find maybe even write on twitter and say is anyone part of any facebook groups for business owners um and journalists and, and see what you come up with um because yeah i'm sure you i'm sure there must be the equivalent cool i think I think we should probably move on to PR shout outs. We love to ask the, those that we interview to give shout out to anybody that they've worked with in the past and collaborate with maybe often as well. Um, do you have anyone that you want to, you know, give a pat on the back to? I have several people because there are so love many, it. there are so many PRs that have helped me um, write articles and I do feel like they not, they don't often get the credit um, that they deserve. So as I mentioned, I speak to BPAS 
a lot. Um, there is a PR there called Olivia Marshall, who I was speaking to just earlier today. Um, and she is probably sick and tired of all my fertility, birth, abortion, everything else related questions related to reproductive health. Um, but she gets them all the time and she answers very quickly. So I'm always very grateful to her. Um, there's a couple of mental health charities in the UK who are phenomenal. Um, one of them is called Mind and the other one is Samaritans. They, The PRs there are so good. I just can't sing their praises enough. They've, we've really established a relationship where we can jump on the phone and not just ask them for a specific story or specific quotes, but have a conversation about, do you think this is a story we should cover? Um, because they've really worked up their expertise in a really sensitive area, particularly around uh, really tricky topics like celebrity suicides. Um, unfortunately, you know, we've had a couple of stories in the UK that we've had to cover in the last year or so. And we really want to do them in a way that's not triggering at all, of course, is never glamorizing, is sensitive, is helpful to readers, is raising awareness in a really responsible way. And those PRs are so good just to have a conversation about headlines and angles with. And I always find that if they don't know the answer, then they will find someone who does know the answer. And um, their doctors and therapists are always really happy to jump on the phone as well and just have a really casual conversation before we even start writing the story. Um, so I love that. I think if more people could find the time to do that, it would just make everything so much better because um, it stops it stops anyone stepping into dangerous territory. You know, you don't want to write an article that's wrong and they don't want publicity that's wrong. So if you have a conversation about what's the most sensible way to go about this, um, you know, it's it's quite refreshing and it's super helpful. And then finally, on the lighter side of things, because obviously they're very serious topics, um, but there's a few PRs who I just know from Twitter who are just like absolute angels who are always offering to help in some way or another. So there's a woman called Carrie Eddins, another called Ruth Barrett, and uh, Serena Chandy, who's she's recently left PR actually to go back into journalism. But the three of them are so helpful. They have all offered to be case studies in previous stories or they've said, oh, I've got a mate who could be a case study for that. Um, or they've, you know, retweeted things even when they can't help with them themselves. So that is just lovely. And um, yeah, it just really makes you feel like you get to know people as well. if You speak to people like that periodically. That's really cool. I love that. It made me think too, um, you mentioned that they go out of their way to find somebody who might be a good fit or might be, you know, maybe they're not the best source. They just go out of their way to help you. And that's something that we hear in one shape or form, you know, one way or another from so many other journalists as well. Like just being available and being ready to go and find another source that maybe isn't a client of yours, but maybe is somebody that you know yeah. is just one way to build a really fruitful relationship with a journalist yeah. or a reporter yeah in a genuine way too it just comes across as so so generous and I understand that they've got jobs to do too and they you know they can't do it every day but on the odd occasion when someone says well you know what I know someone who could help with that I don't represent them but I'll mm -hmm. you know I'll hook you up that's so nice it's just so nice yeah I like that mm. generous be generous in addition to being generous do you have any other tips for publicists who want to make a good impression, not just on you, but other journalists or 
anything else that you think would be helpful for them to be better collaborators? Hmm. I think one of the things that um, is like a pet peeve, I know, among my team, so I'm going to take a guess and say it probably is for other journalists too, is not sending a clear pitch or a pitch that only has um, half the information or, or less than that. We get quite a lot of emails that say things like, hey, Rachel, I've got an interesting women's health story coming up. Would you like the press release? For that, I've got I've got ah, no idea okay. who their client is. I've got no idea what the story is. I've then got to reply and say, yes, please send it over. And I would just say, you know, be bold, be confident. Um, there's nothing pushy or, t- or too forward about sending something straight off and just send a press release. Uh, attach a we transfer or Dropbox or whatever you use for images if you've got them and give everything at the start and it just saves everyone time you know I can look at it and decide whether it's something for us or not very quickly and it also means I've not wasted your time with all the back and the back and forth um so yeah so I would just say as much information as you could provide up front is is really really helpful I know some publicists are worried about making their email too long, but I found that if I can make the email short, I could always, like you said, Dropbox, that's just a link, Um, copy and pasting a press release at the bottom. That's not, that doesn't make your email look too long. They can tell. I agree with that. If the press release is at the bottom, then if we've decided it's not for us in the intro, that's fine. We won't even get that far. So I think you don't need to worry. I would rather have the info there rather than having to ask for it. What about follow-ups? Do you find them helpful or do you pretty much know after the first pitch and you This move is on? such a tough one because, uh, because as I said, <laughs> we get so many emails. So I have to admit that there are definitely times when I've completely missed a really great pitch. Someone's followed up and I've gone, oh, wow, that's completely in my ballpark. I'm sorry I missed that first time around. I then picked it up on the follow-up. So it doesn't mean that you can never follow up I would just say, please don't follow up two, three, four, five times because um, that that does happen. And you're like, oh boy, this is this is tough. Um, I would I would say, you know, one follow up is is actually helpful. It's it's fine, um, but only if you've actually done a bit of research about the publication and the journalist. You know, sometimes I will get a pitch and then multiple follow ups for a story that there's no way in hell I'd ever cover. You know, when when have I ever written about space? I don't know. I just completely pulled that topic from <laughs> from the air. It's relevant. <laughs> space. We've done a space. You know, before. just like stories that I have never written about, will never write about. They clearly don't hit any of our any of our kind of criteria, and um, and then th- that's when the multiple chases can get really tedious to look through um so yeah do your research first before you chase if you think it's valid do a chase don't do 10 is what I would say beautiful um well before we let you go do you have any final tips and if you have more tips (laughs) we can keep going so don't don't hesitate is what we're saying but we just want to throw it out um there are there was one thing that I was gonna say um, that that I find Ooh, yeah. that I find yeah. super helpful, and it's quite HuffPost specific, but um, I think it would be remiss not to mention it. We love case studies. Um, we use case studies in as many features as possible, really, um, because we have a mission statement at HuffPost called "It's Personal." 
So it essentially just means putting people at the centre of all of our stories where possible. And whatever whatever I'm covering, I will always think, can I have a real person's voice in here? And when I say real person's voice as well, it's just personal experiences of everyday readers from all backgrounds, like intersectionality is something that we really focus on. Um, we do that with our own podcast as well. All of the guests that we um, that we book for that, we really try and be intersectional, people from different backgrounds, people from different jobs, different parts of the country, LGBTQ people, um, parents, non-parents, people with disabilities, you know, all of those things are really important to us. So if you're a PR and you've got access to people with personal experiences, including those is is just, it makes a huge difference to us. It saves so much time. And I think it really brings the story to life and it takes it from being a press release to a feature, which is always what we're trying to do. So that would be a tip. <laughs> I love that. And then do you... Um... Do you prefer to source them yourself or is it once again always helpful for a publicist? Honestly, just, you know, I I yeah. use so many yeah. of them throughout the month that I, I will take them from all angles. <laughs> I I source right. a lot yeah. of case studies myself. Sometimes they come through charities. Um very rarely they come through PRs representing brands, but sometimes it can work um if it's if it's something that isn't too um you know, doesn't does too promotional. Yeah, it doesn't feel too much like an advert. Um, but yeah, real people are are really central to what we do. So having having those stories highlighted really really helps me out. And then the the only final thought um, that I wanted to share was was just kind of a a sorry to all of the PRs that I've not replied to. Um, <laughs> as, as we've as we've touched on I just can't reply to them all there are so many of them and I feel constantly guilty especially when you see on social media PRs saying that journalists are rude for not replying but honestly if I reply to every email I'd never get any work done (laughs) I'd never write the stories that you want me to write (laughs) um so thank you for the patience of the PR community and I apologize for my lack of response please don't hate me no apologies <laughs> needed. <laughs> that was really sweet of you. We need to make an audiogram of that, Britt. <laughs> that was cute. Oh my goodness. Oh man, no apologies needed for real though. I think <laughs> at least for those of us who've been in the industry long enough, like it's, Gosh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Earn Media. If you head over to weearnmedia.com, you'll find a summary of the episode along with links to any of the resources and more information about our lovely guest and where you can find them online. If you have any topic suggestions or just general PR questions for us or future guests, email us at podcast at weearnmedia.com. Of course, you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at weearnmedia and we're on Twitter and Instagram. 